0: May God bless you as you watch this week's message.
1: Shame and known by her true name, and it's why I.
2: I told myself a long time ago that if I ever taught on Sundays, that I wouldn't be one of those people who's always bringing about stories of their kids as sermon analogies. And I promise I had no intention of doing that. Um, but until last night at bedtime. <laughs> so my wife, Laura and I have uh, two boys that are just amazing, Knox and Shepard. Uh, they're three in three months. And last night when Laura was, uh, was putting Shepard down uh, to sleep, um, you know, I'm doing my normal bedtime process with, uh, with Knox, which is, which is fairly extensive already. And we get to the part of the routine where it's time, where, and, and we do like a horsey ride over to the dresser, and he like rests on my back and grabs his jammies. Um, and so it's time to put his jammy shirt on. And somehow he ends up doing this thing where, I don't, I don't think I can do it right now, where his, he puts his elbow through the armhole, and he's stuck like this the entire time. And, and I, I immediately jump in I'm like, hey man, let's, let's go ahead and you know, kind of bring it through and we'll be able to get your, your arm out. But he is adamant that I am not allowed to touch him right now and he's gonna figure it out himself. And for 15 minutes, this goes on of him running around our upstairs, crying and yelling and so upset that he cannot get his arm unstuck from right here. Now, the reason I share this um and even when against my own desire to ever share sermon analogies like this, is that it reminded me so much um, you know a lot of what I want to share about today. oh sorry, but also how how often you know we Christians can approach the scriptures and approach the te- teachings of Jesus where we start off with a preconceived notion of maybe what Jesus said, what he taught, what it means to be a Christian. We stick our elbow through the shirt hole and we are adamant that we're right, that we've got it all figured out. And we just force ourselves, and eventually end up, you know, if, if you don't go back, to the scriptures, go back to where it started and recognize what did Jesus actually say, we end up ripping apart the shirt and we end up with a gospel and a church that, is, uh, that really looks nothing like um, what the Bible actually speaks about. So with that in mind, um, this is kind of the, the approach I'll take uh, in today's teaching is to really get back to what does the scriptures say that Jesus's message really is. So Lord, we ask that you would come, come and speak. Holy Spirit, we desire to hear from you. This morning, your truth, your message, and it's a glorious message, Lord. So come, come and speak. So imagine with me um, that you are an Israelite living in the first century. It's a Saturday and you're heading off to synagogue. Uh, A buddy of yours just told you that there's this uh, guest speaker that's going to be showing up and he's from Nazareth. And you happen to joke around with him that, oh, can anything good really come out of Nazareth? But you head out all the same. And when you get there, it's this man named Jesus. And you've heard of this guy a little bit and it triggers uh, a bit of curiosity because you've heard you've been intrigued by his unorthodox teaching style. And as you walk in, what is it that you hear him teaching about? This is a question I'll ask everybody here. What would Jesus most likely be talking about in that synagogue? This is one of those questions where we ought to pay attention to our answer because how, how you answer that question tells a lot about how you view Jesus here in the present and it will reveal how you've been raised and possibly, you know, how you've been conditioned to think about Jesus. Do you hear Jesus talking about loving your neighbor as yourself or maybe talking about treating others how you wish to be treated? Or maybe he's talking about how he needs to go and die for you so that, uh, so that you can go to heaven when you die. If you had to summarize everything Jesus was about, in one sentence, how would you do it? Now, the astute church would probably take a look up at the slide. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe, okay, maybe David's talking about the kingdom of God and that's the answer he's looking for. And, and, and you'd be right. Well done. Um, now, despite the fact that the gospel authors use the word kingdom well over 100 times, the majority of which comes straight from the mouth of Jesus, for some reason, when we think about Jesus, the first thing that comes to our mind isn't the kingdom and isn't that it has arrived. We should find this really odd and be a bit perplexed as to why this is. So as a community here at MCC, we desire to follow after Jesus, to become like him, to do the things that he did. Because we believe that as we become the types of people we are meant to be by the power of the Holy Spirit, this not only gives glory to God and extends his blessing to our neighbors and our city, but we are transformed in the process to actually live out the vocation to which we are called. In light of this, it's then extremely important that we represent him well, which can only be done with an accurate understanding of who he was, what message he shared, and what he believed he was accomplishing and then therefore did accomplish. So the first place I'd like to take us uh, is briefly into the world uh, that Jesus and the writers of the New Testament lived in. Now what I'm about to read to you is known as the calendar sh- inscription of Priene. Uh, this is essentially a birthday card that was sent out to the Roman world to celebrate and remind everyone of the birthday of Octavian, who's also known as Caesar Augustus. This was likely written about uh, 30 BC, just a few decades before Jesus. And think about like, if, you, know, if, you know, when your birthday rolls around, maybe you send out something similar to this. And I, and I pulled up the opening of Mark's gospel because you can begin to see some of the uh, similarities. But this is, this is what the inscription says. It says, because providence has ordered our life in a way of the divine. And since the emperor through his epiphany or his appearing has exceeded the hopes of all former good news or all former gospels, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future would surpass him. And since the birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of his good news May it be decreed, and then the inscription goes on like that. So in the year 44 BC, um, there was the well-known Julius Caesar. uh, He was assassinated, and his assassination drove the Roman Empire into civil war between those who killed him, Brutus and Cassius, and his friends, Mark Antony, um, and this Octavian. Now uh, Antony and Octavian ended up defeating Brutus and Cassius, but then they turned on each other in a power struggle ultimately for the throne. And after 13 years of this civil war and turmoil, Octavian stood as the victor and Mark Antony got to just run away with Cleopatra. And uh, so Octavian was known in the empire as the one who brought peace. He renamed himself Augustus and became known as the son of God, the prince of peace. And inscriptions similar to the one that I read um, were consistently sent out throughout the entire Roman empire, declaring him as savior. And he as the one who had ushered in an era of justice and peace. And there happened to be a small window as well between the time of his final victory and when he, and when he finally took the throne in which people were called to repent and to believe his good news. And Herod, who we're introduced to at the beginning of the the gospel of Matthew, happened to be one of those people who kind of sided with his enemies, um, but he was able to spin it and kind of repent and say, look how loyal I was to this guy. I can go ahead and be this loyal to you. Now, what all of this should highlight to us is the context in which the word gospel or euangelion, good news in the Greek which is is simply means good news. The word is tightly connected to the idea of a royal announcement about a king and his kingdom. And that's what the opening of Mark's gospel is makes it so provocative is that what he's saying is dangerous. He's speaking about the good news of a different king, fairly obvious at this point, why Jesus and many of his followers were killed. So just like uh, we did that exercise a minute ago about what comes to mind when we think of the main thing that Jesus talked about, we can do the exact same thing with the question of what is the gospel? If I asked it around the room, um, I'm sure I'd get a whole host of answers and many times though it ends up being summarized uh, something like this. You're a sinner who's on your way to hell, but Jesus died on the cross so that you can go to heaven when you die, if you believe in him. Now, there's, there's a number of things wrong with a summary like this, and it's baked full of so many like half-truths and distortions. Um, but one major red flag that we should see with this type of summary is that if you search for that in the Bible, in the Bible in front of you, you will be hard-pressed to find anything like that truly in the four Gospels. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? I am in no way saying that Jesus is not the way or that his death on the cross is insignificant. In fact, I'm saying the exact opposite. My intention here is to honor first and foremost, what did Jesus believe he was accomplishing and what did the biblical authors intend to communicate? And what we end up finding is a much fuller picture of what is accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. Are you still with me? All right, good. Cool. Now, uh, the, ble- the best place to start here um, is with what the gospel that Jesus himself actually preached. And if we start there, if, or if we don't start there, we may, we, we may very well end up preaching a gospel uh, that Jesus didn't preach. But lucky for us, if we continue on in Mark 1, um, in, the, in the gospel according to, to Mark, we get that definition of the gospel. It says, Jesus went into the Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So when we look at Jesus' explanation of what the gospel is, his good news is that a time has come and that the kingdom of God has arrived. These two things. Like I mentioned before, this word kingdom shows up well over a hundred times through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if I haven't made it abundantly clear yet, the kingdom is the thing that Jesus talked about more than anything else. It's the main heartbeat of his mission and his message. Everything else is simply an offshoot of what he believed he was bringing into reality. I would say that there's a strong argument to be made As well, that this theme of the kingdom of God is the central thread that connects everything from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But all of this begs the question, what on earth is the kingdom? And what does it mean when a Jewish prophet comes on the scene, let alone Jesus, to walk around saying this? What is up with him saying the time has come? Well, like what time? So for the next few minutes, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna spend some time unpacking these ideas. By doing so, we will discover exactly what Jesus believed he was bringing into fulfillment. And this will then shine more clarity on all the things that he ends up going and doing throughout the four gospels. But before that, um, first I wanna teach you a little trick um, in a way of to responsibly perform biblical theology and attempt uh, to interpret a text and understanding its context. Um, so, uh, hey, can anybody tell me who this is? Puss some boots. Yeah. Do you know wh- what, movie, what movie did he come in? Shrek two, Shrek two. So in, in 2004, come on the scene, Shrek was awesome with a Shrek two of, as I, I was reading online. Some people think it's the greatest movie of all time, but, um, but anyways, uh, he comes on the scene and he's this like sword fighting, uh, cat, um, but the astute moviegoer, would recognize something about this. Who who is the voice actor for Puss in Boots? Antonio Banderas. Now, is there ever anywhere else that we've seen Antonio Banderas play some master swordsman? Mask of Zorro. Yes. So the average moviegoer is going to come and they're going to see Puss in Boots and they're like, oh, this is a cute cat playing a sword. I don't know much about him. Ah, but the someone who's been paying attention and loves their movies will say, I've seen this before. Let me go ahead and take the mask of Zorro and map that on to my understanding of who Puss in Boots is. And now I have the background and now I really know what this guy is all about. Okay. So Puss in Boots gets to be our guide then. And because this is exactly what biblical authors are doing. Um, they, They were raised on these scriptures. Jesus was raised on these scriptures and they... They have the idea that you have been paying attention, that you have read your Bible and that you have recognized these themes that are developed and can then map them on when they use certain words. Um, you know, the, the Bible is, is not a children's book. It is, is some intense, you know, hardcore literature and stuff, but they, they are asking you to do this, to map on what's talked about in the story so far to really glean its meaning. So something, um, uh, before I get started here as we, as we unpack some biblical theology, is um, I just want to, this will serve as like my bibliography for the teaching today. Um, I've been deeply impacted and influenced by the work of, of N.T. Wright, um, as well as Tim Mackey and the Bible Project. So if you walk away with one thing today, I would hope, you know, go and check out the Bible Project videos. They're these great like five-minute synopsis, but even better, their podcast episodes are like two to 20 hours worth of content where they're unpacking how they created like a a lot of these five minute videos. It's, you will be blessed uh, in this church through ingesting that content. I promise. Um, great stuff. But as I alluded, alluded to earlier, the first instance in which we see God's kingdom appear in the Bible, like, like where, where would you say that is? Where's the first place that you would see that? Well, like many times, when we ask that question, it's Genesis 1. It's page 1 of the Bible. And we're introduced to this picture of a God who is a royal artist. He is creative and he is wise. He is powerful enough to breathe and to speak a world of order into beauty and in existence. In the ancient reader's mind, this would immediately call to attention kings who speak and their orders are followed. A pharaoh says, go build me, build me a pyramid and it happens. So in this, but, but what is utter, utterly unique about this king is that in the world he creates that is full of potential, he desires to share it. And not just to allow others to enjoy it, but to share ownership of it as well. And who are the unique creatures that are installed as his co-rulers? Yeah, it's the humans. They are given responsibility to steward and to rule God's world on his behalf. And when we do this, we image him. This one, I think. Yeah, that one. So this is what we get uh, in verse 27 of Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves along the ground. Now what's being used here is king and queen language to rule and to reign. These are things that kings do. And in the ancient times, it was only the kings that were called the image of God. So from page one, Genesis is making a radical statement about the nature of human beings. In every other culture at this time, the king was the image of God. And everyone else was just cheap slave labor. But not with this God. He elevates every human being to level playing field so that they can be co-rulers with him on earth. And they are to take all the raw potential of this good world of what God has created and take it somewhere. Now, this is the the vocation of humanity, but it is going to require some wisdom. There will naturally be decisions that need to be made about what is the good direction to take the world, and what is the not good direction to take the world. So you, you probably know where I'm going here. The humans are faced with the choice to decide how will they go about ruling and stewarding this creation. Will they glean wisdom from God and trust his definition of what is good and what is not good? Or will they seize the opportunity to define it for themselves, even at the expense of others? And unfortunately, this is exactly what happens when we go on to Genesis 3. We see humans deciding to rebel against God's rule, overthrow his kingdom by redefining good and what is not good as how they see fit. Humans are then depicted as setting up an alternative kingdom, which gives us that central conflict throughout the entire scriptures that needs to be sorted out. How is God going to respond when his world has been taken over by human kingdoms that are introduced here? And this plays out all the way to Genesis 11, which is the culmination of of human kingdoms in in the nation of Babylon. So what is God going to do? What he does is he enacts a plan to reestablish his rule and his reign over these kingdoms of the world. He alludes to this very early on in a prophecy in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the snake, which is really the root of all that rebellion. But the hinge moment in the story comes when he singles out a single family and forms them into his people that are meant to become a contrast kingdom to that of the kingdoms of this world. Abraham and Sarah are selected to be the ones in whom God will reveal what it means to be truly human and does not redefine good and evil, but instead trusts in the wisdom of God. And he says to them in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse and every nation on earth will be blessed through you. And God calls Abraham to lead a new people group into the midst of a growing violence and injustice, but not just with the intention of removing this family from the world. No, but specifically to be a blessing to the world. God intends to extend his blessing through them that the entire world can be blessed and return to their original vocation of image bearers of the God, which naturally leads to ultimate human flourishing. This is what it means to be the people of God. Are you still with me? Are you still there? All right, cool. <laughs> so the, our, our, our next pit stop here, um, as we kind of move through the scriptures and remember, we're unpacking what did Jesus think he was fulfilling? What did he bring? What, what does he mean when he says the time has come? The next thing is where, where do we see the actual people of God first refer to God as their king? Where does that appear in the story? It's the story of uh, of Exodus. And Abraham's family through a wide range of events, many of them mistakes and poor decision-making on their own part, find themselves in slavery in what is the worst human kingdom that we've seen up to this moment in the story. And that's the kingdom of Egypt. It's ruled by a Pharaoh. um, And he really, it's, it's everything that's wrong with human kingdoms um, joined together to where he has redefined good and evil so much that killing babies is good in his eyes. Have we seen that before? So, what is God's response? He raises up a, re- a representative in Moses and through him reasserts his kingdom over what ends up being this archetypal human kingdom. We are seeing the clash of kingdoms here. Now, it's a pretty intense story, and we don't have too much time to dive, uh, dive into it. Um, but Pharaoh rejects God, and in the last-ditch effort to maintain his kingdom over the Israelites, he ends up getting crushed by the water of the Sea of the Reeds. And while the people of God move safely to the other side, they are a liberated and a freed people. And in response to God confronting the human kingdoms... And bringing and making a new people for himself. We get this excerpt known as the song of the sea. So Moses and the Israelites, they sang this song to the Lord. God, you are highly exalted. Both horse and driver has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He, will, he has become my salvation. He is my God. I will exalt him. And the Lord reigns forever and ever. Now, after the Israelites are called out of Egypt, God enters into a covenant with them. Um, which if you haven't listened to Robert Whitlow's message uh, from a couple of weeks ago. Highly recommend it. It was, it was awesome. That was awesome, man. Uh, but when God's kingdom comes near, it means that he forms himself a new people, liberating them from the kingdoms of this world and confronting evil. This is the story. This is what it means for God to become king. People are rescued and evil is confronted. These people are invited to live under the reign and the wisdom of God. The laws of how to become an alternative kingdom amongst them are designed in such a way so that Israel can be that city on a hill and can extend that blessing to the entire world. Now, this newly liberated people, however, um, how do they do at living under God's reign? Uh, yeah, not, not so hot. And Moses recognizes this. Uh, and therefore he sees the inevitability of Israel rejecting God as their king. So he speaks to them um, in Deuteronomy just before they cross over into the promised land. And he's laying out, hey, when, y- when y'all screw up, you reject God as king. These are the requirements of this king that you are to put in. And so he says uh, a little bit later down, kind of in the middle, I probably should have bolded it, but I'll read it to you. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself and make the people return to Egypt. He must not take many wives. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. He is to write for himself. So that's what he's not supposed to do. But what he is supposed to do is he is to write for himself on a scroll, the copy of the law taken from the Levitical priests. And it is to be with him. He is to read it all the days of his life. And he must learn to revere the Lord, his God. This is the requirements of the King. Keep this stored in the back of your mind. We'll reference this in a second. And Moses also goes on to say in multiple places, pleading in fact with the Israelites that they would choose life that is found in God's wisdom because the end result of rejecting him would result ultimately back in slavery and in exile. And what do we find early on in, in the kingdom of Israel as they've settled, uh, as, as they settled into the land? The people come to this prophet named, uh, uh, God, was it Samuel? I'm, I'm totally blanking right now. Is it Samuel or Nathan? I think it was Samuel. Yeah, he says, you are old and your sons uh, do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. And Samuel is displeased by this as he should, but God comes in. He says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you. They have rejected, but it is me that they have rejected as their king. Now, remember. Moses fully expected this to happen. And he put the requirements of the king in place that his primary role is to essentially be a Bible nerd so that he can pull from the wisdom of Torah in order to implement how to rule. However, it's not, uh, it's not soon after that these kings are established, um, that we find that this ends up not being the case. And we have what's, uh, what's really known as the fall, not only of, of Israel, but the fall of the kingship of Israel here in David. Um, And it says, you know, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. This woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to go and find her. And she is Bathsheba. She's the the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And then David sent messages, messengers to go and get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now the word choice used by the author is very intentional. If you look at this in the Hebrew, you'll find that the author is using identical language to that of Eve picking off the fruit in the garden of Eden. This is a fall narrative for the nation of Israel and David himself. David sees a woman that is desirable. He reaches out and he takes her for himself. But unfortunately it, uh, it gets a little bit worse from here too. So um, in, uh, in first Kings, we get, uh, we get David's uh, son, Solomon. Um, and this is remember, re- recall back those requirements of the king it says that the weight of the gold that Solomon, Solomon received was nearly 666 talents, 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold, that's a lot, a lot of gold. Nothing was even made of silver. He had so much gold. They didn't even need silver in his days. And where did, uh, did Sol, Solomon accumulated some horses too? And where did he get those horses? Well, he went back to Egypt and he got them. Remember, that's exactly what he was told not to do. And then besides that as well, he had, he loved many, many women. He had hundreds of wives of royal birth and 300 concubines that led him astray. And elsewhere, we also see in the narrative that Solomon likely amassed so much of this wealth through slave labor. The people of God rescued out of Egypt have gone on to become just like Egypt And as God promised, and as we see throughout the Hebrew Bible, the prophets call on Israel to repent the threat of exile. And this is exactly what happens. The kingdom is taken away from Israel and they're sent off to slaves in exile in Babylon. Now, this is where the story of the Bible comes to its climax. This is the unresolved conflict in which the Hebrew Bible ends. What is God going to do now that his people have become just like all the other nations? Now, I mentioned that the prophets were constantly warning Israel and calling for their repentance, but they also offered, um, they offered a message of hope that they would be able to come out of exile. And this is what makes the scroll of Isaiah, if you've ever read that, so wonderful. And you see this play out in the, the first 39 chapters. It's very much warning about exile to come if they do not repent. But from chapters 40 onwards, the tone shifts and this is where we see a hope that is written to a people that are already in exile, speaking of how God will come and rescue them. And this is where we get Isaiah 52, where it says, How beautiful on the mountains are those who bring good news, who proclaim the peace and bring good tidings, who proclaim the salvation of Zion. Listen, you watchmen on the wall. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. The Lord himself will come in his power and pull them out of exile and provide them freedom. So what is depicted here is that the battle is going on in Babylon and a watchman on the wall is looking for any sign of hope. And off in the distance, he sees someone running and bringing good news that our God reigns. He has laid bare his holy arm to rescue his people out of exile. This is the hope if you're a first century Israelite that you lived on. And how many, ta- many times, uh, you know, they, they recognized that they weren't in Babylon anymore, but they were just under the boot of a, new, of a new king, of a different kingdom. They were still in exile. But the confounding thing about Isaiah, and as we see in the other, some of the other prophets as well, is that there is another image given of how Israel was to be rescued out of exile. And that's the picture of the suffering servant. We see the four servant poems in Isaiah. You see, Isaiah declares that God would come again in a new and surprising way to reassert his rule and his reign. But also in Isaiah, you have an announcement in chapter 42, where we're introduced to a servant of God. And God says, here is my servant whom I uphold. He is my chosen one in whom I am very pleased. Notice that. I have put my spirit upon him and he will put forth justice to the nations. So there's a promise that God himself will come again and reassert his rule. But there's also a servant who would come and reassert God's reign. One empowered by the spirit to bring justice to the nations. And this will be a day of the Lord that cannot be undone. In the final servant poem, In Isaiah 52 and 53, we see a fuller picture that really encapsulates much of what is spoken of this figure uh, in the other three poems. And it's not insignificant as well that this occurs immediately after this this good news message um, that's shared here. And what it says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouth. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one whom people hide their faces. He was despised as we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God and stricken and afflicted by him. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us Turn to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in light of all of this, and in this message, we can come back to Jesus. And, you know, just like Israel under Pharaoh, you know, they're now under a new kingdom. They're all now in exile to Rome and Rome doesn't take too kindly to liberators. You see, Jesus was not killed for being a good moral teacher which our culture seems so intent on reducing him to, but for claiming to be a king coming to liberate his people. And now we can come back and we can unpack what Jesus says in Mark one. He says, The time has come. God has come to rescue his people from exile. He is coming to crush the head of the serpent and to liberate his people from an oppressive kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. The rule and the reign of God can now be established in which humans can return to their original vocation as image bearers of the royal artist creator God and partner with him by his wisdom and his definition of good and evil to take the world somewhere. This blessing on his people and living into this vocation is ultimately to bring about God's blessing onto all the nations and the entire creation, this mission of God's people, we can finally get back on track. And he says, repent and believe. Stop what you're doing. The world is now a fundamentally different place because what is happening in and through Jesus, this demands a response. I love uh, John Mark Comer's definition of repent. He says, uh, to repent, to change your mind your worldview, rethink everything you know about everything you think you know about who God is, who you are, and what the good life you actually crave is. And put your trust and your confidence in me, Jesus, to heal you, save you, free you, and lead you into the life that you ache for. With all of this background knowledge, now you are able to go and go and read the gospels with this kingdom message at the heart. And you begin to see what it looks like when God's kingdom invades the kingdoms of this world and brings about liberation. These stories aren't just designed to tell you something interesting that happened 2,000 years ago, but to give you a living encounter with Jesus. He is going after the root issue of how we all define good and evil. People would encounter Jesus and they would find their deepest values and motives exposed before him. He forces each one of us to bring to the surface, our value systems and the darkest parts of our characters to renew the human condition and to heal the human race requires dealing with that darkness and the things and the lies that we believed about our identity and what it means to be significant in the world. He wants to come and deal with that. And oftentimes to be significant in human kingdoms, Looks like establishing your will over others. But to Jesus, you rule over people by serving them. By putting others' interests above your own. This is the paradox of the upside down nature of God's kingdom. Which from the perspective of those who have lived their entire lives in the kingdom of this world. It looks rather odd. But what else happens in the stories uh, of the gospels when Jesus goes about and announces his kingdom? Healing happens. Jesus moved towards the people who needs healing the most. He confronts head on the effects of evil and installs his kingdom right in that midst. People walk away with their hearts, bodies and minds changed. This is what it looks like when Jesus becomes King. Now with all of this talk about Jesus's definition of the gospel being the kingdom of God arriving, how does the cross fit into this? When we look at the gospel through this lens of the kingdom of God being here, which, which my conviction is that uh, this is what we should glean from the text. We still get the cross as the central act and climax of this grand story. But now we no longer see it through the lens of an angry God who is justified to send humanity to hell. And that um, somehow he ends up being pacified by taking out his wrath on Jesus. Instead, What we see is a creator God coming as a human in Jesus to liberate his people from the darkest kingdom of all that has held them in bondage. And this is sin. And what he does is he lures out the enemy and the enemy's greatest tactics. Man-made rebellious kingdoms like Rome, corrupt religious institutions represented by the temple in the first century. And these institutions say, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus on the cross takes on also the final, en- the final weapon the enemy has to throw at humanity, which is death itself. And what comes out of it? Jesus rises from the dead. The enemy and the kingdoms of this world exhaust all of their power onto Jesus and it is no match for him. This is why the cross is an enthronement of a victorious king. And when we recognize it in this light, Matthew 20 ends up making so much more sense. It's this moment where James and John's mom comes and says, hey, can you go ahead and do this for my, um, for my, for my boys? And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine will sit at your right and your left in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for because because of how I'm going to install my kingdom to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant because who was seated at Jesus' right and his left? The robbers next to him on the cross. This is his enthronement as King. This is how God becomes King. It is through suffering and serving and dying for the world. However, without the resurrection, we simply end up with a fraudulent Messiah and a failed attempt at liberation. But with the resurrection, we see the victorious king who took on our iniquities, knowing full well that despite the very real scars that he would receive, this would produce an even far more real kingdom and new creation on the other side. This victorious king not only liberates us, but ushers in the first fruits of the ultimate hope of a fully one day realized kingdom that is new creation. And this is the significance of what we watched last week uh, in our baptisms. In the same way that the Israelites passed through the Sea of Reeds and came out the other side as a people liberated from bondage and slavery into a new people in God's kingdom. We agree with Jesus that what he did paved the way for us truly to be a new creation underneath his Lordship. All right. Well, thank you so much for letting me me speak today. Um, I'd like to leave us with just uh, a few, a few final thoughts. So one, um, one appropriate response, I believe uh, to this message is honestly just to simply spend some time with Jesus It's one thing to have an encounter with Jesus here on a Sunday morning, but it's entirely other thing to take that into Monday morning and the rest of your week, go and seek him, read the gospels. Remember the requirements of the King. They were to go and they were, they were to study the scriptures and glean the wisdom of God from that. The God of the universe has moved into the neighborhood and a response is required Number two, so despite, you know, everything I've shared today, it's fairly obvious that we are not living yet quite in a world in which all of this kingdom is fully realized. King Jesus is on the throne, but his methodology to bring about obedience to his kingdom is through love and not power. And it might work a little bit slower, but it's so much better. We've already seen what the kingdoms of this world do. And we ourselves can recognize that we live in a country that has many different kingdoms and gospels and definitions of what the good life is. Most, is in, most, most of these gospels and these kingdoms right now are in pursuit of their own definition of some type of utopia. And as Mark Sayers puts it, he says, this is like seeking the kingdom without the king. If you're here and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, or, or maybe you're not sure if you are. First, thank you so much for coming. I'm so glad you're here. This is a place that's safe for your your skepticism and your questions. You can bring all that here. But I think it's safe to say that you recognize that not only within yourself, but within the world at large, something has gone wrong. Things are not as they should be. And no system of government or institution is truly going to bring about lasting change and ultimate fulfillment. There will always be that scratch that can't be itched. But Jesus doesn't operate in the same way as the institutions of this world. He goes after the root cause of all pain and brings healing to that spot by transforming us from the inside out. Freeing you, saving you, healing you, and leading you ultimately to the life that you ache for. If you desire today to experience that wholeness, I invite you. I think Jesus invites you to change your life forever. Don't let the moment pass. I would happily pray for you. I know there's tons of leaders that would happily talk through these things and pray with you. So please, you know, if this is something you're, you're curious about. Yeah. Bring those questions up today. But lastly, uh, as much as we see it throughout the world, um, the, you know, a kingdom being sought without the king, I often see in the church that we're seeking a king, but foregoing his kingdom. Dallas Willard has said, if you're preaching the goth, if your preaching of the gospel does not naturally lead people to apprentice under Jesus, as the logical next step, then you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus and something, uh, you're, you're preaching something else. So maybe maybe you feel like you're a believer in Jesus, but not so much a follower. And, and, but maybe you've recognized that there's likely more to be tapped into in this story than simply having some ticket to heaven. And th- But this all starts with sitting first and foremost in the presence of Jesus, get to know who he is. But then there is a decision to be made to actually submit to God's rule and His reign, His wisdom, a decision about what direction to go with the next stage of your life, how to raise your kids, how to speak with your spouse, how you choose your spend time, how, how you choose to spend your time, what you look at on the internet, how you talk to people when they're not in the room. But keep this in mind: it's all an invitation, not, not a set of deeds that's going to earn God's favor but simply an invitation to live as a member of his people in his kingdom so that he, what he has established to then go and bless the entire world through you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that you know what we truly ache for, what ultimately leads to our deepest desires. And we love you, Lord, that you have have done everything possible to come and inaugurate your kingdom. And we we look forward to the ultimate day and the ultimate hope when it is fully realized. There is no pain and suffering, but we recognize that what you did has changed things now. We don't have to wait to experience your kingdom, to experience liberation, to experience freedom. So we thank you that you have done the work, Jesus. And we ask God that you would continue to install us with with wisdom on how to lead the life in which you have called us. So we thank you, Jesus be with us. As we go from here, we will seek your face this week. Lord, speak to us, Lord, speak to us your wisdom. Amen. Thank you.
0: Amen. Um, Scripture came to mind as um as David was sharing, and, and I think it's it's pertinent because it talks about in Isaiah 54 of the future glory of Zion. And that's ultimately what the king is going to establish at the end. <clears throat> and I love that that he highlights just a couple of very simple points of what is going to be like at the very end of things. And he says, in Isaiah 54 and verse 5 it says for your maker is your husband the lord almighty is his name the holy one of israel your redeemer he is called the god of all the earth the lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit a wife who married a young only to be rejected says your god for a brief moment i abandoned you but with deep compassion i will bring you back I will bring you back. And he goes on to say, I hid my face from you, but now I'm going to reveal my my face to you. I'm going to let you know who I am. You know, sometimes when you think about the concept of the king, it's almost like a, a scary thing. I mean, nobody in their right mind will go in front of a king and just appear and just say, hey, here, my name is David and let's just talk. You wouldn't do that. Nobody would ever do that. But there's something about our king that is so unique, that is so comfortable. He's comfortable with who we are. And he accepts us just like he says here, like someone that has been married and rejected, someone that has been abandoned and is now found, someone that has maybe had a surge of anger, but now he's being forgiven. That's the beauty of our king. And you may look at your life and say, but I don't deserve that king. I don't deserve to, to, to be in his arms. I don't deserve to be accepted. As a matter of fact, it's not of anything that we deserve, but it's everything that he gives freely. Hey, thank you for watching the Sermon of the Week. We pray that you were blessed by it and you felt prompted to act upon what the Spirit of God was saying to you. If you live in the Charlotte area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at one of our weekend gatherings. That way you can find out more about our church family and what we value most. We encourage you also to give to our ministry so that we might continue spreading the gospel of Jesus to our city and throughout the world. To do so, you simply go to missioncommunity.cc Click on the Give button, and the rest is simple. Lastly, I would encourage you to check out the remaining content on our YouTube channel. And don't forget to subscribe. That way, you will receive all of the reminders for fresh content that we put out. Have a wonderful rest of your day. May God bless you, and thank you again for watching this week's message.